Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Pod or Stoke Hunters. On this episode, we're diving into the exhilarating life of Molly. A passionate adventurer and academic, Molly combines her love for the outdoors with scientific exploration in her PhD work with human physiology in backcountry skiing and splitboarding. And that's a little bit of an extreme from where we were talking about gators in Florida last year or last week. So residing in the adventurous landscape of North Vancouver, Molly exemplifies the fusion of intellectual curiosity and outdoor thrill. So let's dive into her story and welcome her. Welcome, Molly. Hey, how are you? Good, and yourself? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. How's it, How's things out in BC? Uh, warm. <laughs> Warmer than usual. So uh, an interesting <laughs> time to be a thermophysiologist trying to study cold weather <laughs> this year. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So do you just like study new uh, or like lighter materials and or like light, lighter jackets and pants in this weather? Or can you do anything or... Uh, luckily, there's still a, still a fair amount we can do. We just uh, need to get a little higher up into the mountains or, you know, use the equipment that we've got. <laughs> Make things cold. <laughs> Make things cold. So do you yeah. have like a cold, like, you know how they have like air uh, tunnels to test like car aerodynamics? Do you have like a cold, a cold room to test like winter jackets and stuff like that? We do actually, yeah. So we have a, a climatic chamber, it's called, that can can go down pretty cold into the kind of minus 60 range. Uh, I haven't gotten to play around with it too much yet, but if it gets any warmer here, I might have to. <laughs> Fair enough. So thermophysiology, tell us, how did you like get into that? How did I get into that? Oh, man, that's a, a long question. <laughs> I'll give you the, uh, the too long, didn't read kind of version of it. Um, yeah, so basically my kind of curiosity for how uh, the human body functions in extreme environments, which is essentially what thermophysiology is, uh, it started when I was hiking, actually. One year back in 2016, I was in India uh, hiking at some high elevations, and I just noticed, like, oh, my gosh, every step that I take is so hard. And, of course, that's the effect of the altitude. Um, so that led me to get into the uh, research in human physiology at high altitudes. And from there, it just kind of kept snowballing into well, what sports do I want to study? What, uh, what really makes, uh, makes me kind of light that fire to get into the lab at six in the morning. And eventually it all kind of came, came up as skiing and snowboarding and uh, the thermophysiology of that, which is what I study now. And that's the human body response to changing temperatures and how we perceive and how our systems respond to changes in temperatures, either cold or hot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So kind of like seeing how, because like, I know wind chill doesn't affect inanimate objects and stuff like that, but it obviously affects how we interact with things. So yeah, big time. Um, so as a materials engineer, um, I get it as how like no one knows what that is and how I describe it now is like, oh, well, you know, civil engineering, building roads and, you know, chemical engineering, chemicals and all the other cool stuff. Well, now if you combine those, that's what materials engineering is and they kind of get it. So how do you describe what you study to regular people who have no idea and put it into like layman's terms? Yeah, good question. Um, I always bring it back to how I also describe my other job, which is I'm a strength and conditioning coach. And we always kind of joke around and say, basically what we do is we tell people to pick stuff up and put it back down again. And <laughs> I was kind of something similar for, uh, for my work in thermophysiology, which is just how you sense hot and cold. So what uh, what systems are at play in the body for uh, sensing hot and cold? So how are you feeling that? And also how does your body respond to it? Makes sense. So are there ways to like 
trick your body into thinking it's warmer? Oh, good question. Uh, yeah, there's always ways to kind of fool physiology, but your body's also pretty good at, uh, at catching up to you when you try and fool it. So um, yeah, there's different areas of the body that you can warm up or cool down uh, that create a greater response uh, in the whole body. Uh, so that's always really interesting. Um, more so on the cooling side, there's been a lot of research in people lowering core temperatures. So the, the temperature at the core of your body um, by cooling down their arms first, which is really, really interesting. You'd think that it would be faster to cool down someone's torso, but we've found actually by cooling their arms down, uh, that core temperature decreases more quickly. Oh, wow. Interesting. I thought it'd be like your head or something, but. Your head too. Your head does, uh, that one works as well. So it's like your head, there's been some research there and then yeah, forearms specifically. Cool. So I guess your passion for outdoors, um, like hiking has really influenced your academic pursuits? Yeah, absolutely. I was super fortunate uh, to grow up in a family where every year our vacations were hiking and camping and winter camping, which, you know, doing that with a six-year-old girl was probably a ton of fun with for my parents. <laughs> but, uh, but eventually, obviously, I grew, grew to love it and was able to kind of integrate that into my academic and my personal life. And it's been a lot of fun for the last 28 years or so here. <laughs> Makes sense. You'll have to give me tips on how to like make outdoors fun for my daughter because she's only five weeks old now. Right. Yeah. So I'll have to get her into get her into a sleeping bag basically and <laughs> take her outside. Yeah. I'm counting. I'm counting down 18 months, um, which is kind of when hips are fully developed. So then she can come skiing with me. <laughs> oh, perfect. There you go. Where, what's the first mountain you're going to take her to? Probably the bunny hill at like Rabbit or Snow Valley or Sunridge. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all have great memories of uh, the good old Rabbit Hill on the side of the, the River Valley there. <laughs> I, I love it. Like I'm from Calgary originally and like we had wind sport. But like having the four little hills here, I think, makes it a lot more competitive. So like you could buy every season pass here for the same price as one season pass at wind sport. <laughs> totally. Well, 18 months counting down <laughs> yeah and then once she's two get her on a shotgun seat so then she can come mountain biking on like the little soft terrain <laughs> yeah. full send or no send right yeah exactly go bigger go bigger <laughs> yeah so with having your parents push you around when you're six and you know being your whole life um tell us about like a standout adventure that significantly impacted your studies or personal growth Oh, that's a great question. I think there, there, there have been a couple actually. Um, one of them would be the uh, backpacking trip that I took to India back in 2016. I think that's the biggest one. I was super fortunate. I got to go uh, hike around Leila Dak, so the northern India, for for six weeks, uh, and it was awesome. Just between the people that I met there, and again, just kind of got those gears turning. I was in the first year of my kinesiology degree at that point. And they're really just, you know, super keen on human body function and whatnot. So everything that was happening uh, up in the mountains there, I think we were up at 5,250 meters was the highest we got. Um, and so a lot of changes in how your body responds to things up there. Um, so that was definitely the standout and what made me really interested in kind of this field of research of extreme physiology. Um, but other than that, you know, going back a little bit further, uh, hiking with my parents in Crow's Nest Pass, so back in Alberta, 
even though I, I live in BC now, you know, Alberta and Alberta hiking will always have a pretty special place in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Crow's Nest Pass is one of the coolest things to see when you drive through there to Fernie and you see all the rocks and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. And then hear the story. Like, I don't know. I, they talk about it now. They're saying like, it's probably going to slide again, which will be interesting to see. Oh, yeah. like it's Frank slide. Yeah. 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 Um, so what does an ideal good day look to you um, when you balance your academic work and your outdoor passions? Oh, great question. Uh, I think an ideal good day would have been Friday this past week. Uh, I got to go do some field testing with my supervisor up in Whistler Blackcomb. So basically hauled a bunch of equipment up there and put sensors all over all over us and said, hey, let's go for a ski and kind of see what we can find. Um, that's so this is a really fun part about research when you're kind of piloting things, making decisions about what equipment you're going to use, where you're going to go, what you really want to look at and making mistakes. And that would be the ideal good day. So, you know, we wake up really early and drive up to Whistler and spend the morning kind of sitting there and in Lyft coffee specifically. That's always my go to in Whistler if you're ever there. Uh, and we just kind of sat there and, and hashed it out for a couple hours, deciding what we wanted to what we wanted to measure that day. Then we threw our skins on our skis and headed up the mountain and got to play around out there for a few hours. So that would absolutely be the ideal good day, kind of that blend of this is a work day, but it's also we're having a ton of fun. We had so many moments on the on the lift heading up for one. And then just as we were either skinning up or skiing down where my, myself and my PhD supervisor, we'd look at each other and just kind of say, so this is a work day, hey? <laughs> Guess so. <laughs> Pretty sweet we're getting paid to, get, to do this right now. Yeah. Um, and I, like growing up, I always heard from a lot of people, like, you know, you can't do your passion or like it loses interest and stuff like that. But hearing from you of like, you know, where you combine it and like hearing others where you combine it seems to be like the real way to win. Cause then it's, it, it seems so much easier to fit in a ski day when it's part of your, your work or like, you know, if you're mountain biking, it's like part of your work rather than like, oh, if you had a nine to five and then you're. I don't know. Then you're just a weekend warrior, maybe sometimes. But it seems harder oh, to go totally. skiing some days if it's not like perfect snow on the weekend, I guess. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I hear a lot of people say that as well, and that's perfectly fair. Like, I totally respect uh, people's decisions to not want to, you know, take their passion and turn it into their job. I can see how, in some cases, that might be pretty exhausting. Um, but for me, I've, I've it's been the best decision I've ever made. Essentially, is to be able to get out there. And even on the days where I'm not on, uh, on my snowboard or on my, you know, skins heading up, it's like, I'm sitting there reading papers or scientific studies about snowboarding and skiing. And I'm still like, well, this is, this is a pretty awesome work day. <laughs> so when you're, when you're done your PhD, what will it look like after that? <laughs> Depends on uh, what the universities are doing, I suppose. Um, no, when I'm done, I'm, I'm really hoping that I can, uh, continue to kind of blend this, uh, academic side of things with my personal uh, interests in these sports and uh, also hopefully a little bit of gear industry work. So I'm hoping that in, at the end of all of this, it's not so much one specific job that I'm doing, but maybe teaching. That's one thing I absolutely love doing at the university uh, is teaching courses in, in this area. Um, so I'm super passionate about it and I love sharing that with others and seeing students who are passionate about it light up. 
uh, as well as maybe working for a gear company and, and using my knowledge of human thermophysiology and some of these um, physiological processes that are going on in extreme environments to inform gear design and decisions about making gear. Well, I know, I know, I know at least of one optics company that could probably have more information on how to protect the eyes. Um, <laughs> Give them my number. I don't, I don't know who they are. You should, uh, yeah, link us up. <laughs> yeah. And then I don't know if you're familiar with them, um, but a couple of people who came from Arteryx now have made outdoor. Mm -hmm. So making custom made, um, more sustainable outdoor gear, which is super cool to see. Totally. And I think that's a really awesome way that the the industries are going are these kind of interdisciplinary approaches. So bringing in people with my sort of expertise, people with expertise in the sustainability uh, side of things, alongside probably the materials engineers like yourself and whatnot, and kind of creating this product that, uh, that kind of touches on all those important factors. 100%. Um, there's some cool things that come out with materials and, you know, like chroma pop. Well, I don't know where it would sit. I mean, optics is science. So, um, sorry, I'm kind of geeking out with when I look at like, <laughs> from a pop and prism and everything where it blocks certain rays and everything like they, they do get coded and stuff like that to do it. So, yeah. Um, speaking of um, academia and everything, what's been kind of like one unexpected lesson or discovery you've made in your unique journey when combining the two? Oh, another really good question. Um, I think the most interesting discovery that I've made in combining the two is just how much of uh, how much I've enjoyed it and how much of a great experience it's been. I definitely had those worries about making snowboarding my job <laughs> uh, and being that every time I go into the lab, I'm just more excited to be there and just more excited to kind of keep learning about it and going in different directions. And also uh, on a personal kind of level, just how uh, malleable I guess I can be. I, in my work, I can be pretty type A, but of course in field research, that only goes so far and sometimes you need to adapt. And uh, it's been an interesting journey <laughs> getting, uh, getting to that point. So when you, when you went testing on Friday, like how big are the sensors and everything that you have to wear while skiing? They're pretty small. Yeah, they're only about like a centimeter across uh, some of them. So we have sensors that they measure like humidity and temperature. Uh, and that's really what we were working with. We'll add in a few other variables as we kind of plan these projects out, but they're not too big and they just kind of fit in between layers of your clothing or in between your skin and layers of clothing. Uh, and yeah, again, they measure just humidity and temperature. So it's a fairly simple sensor. For those watching, something. <laughs> <laughs> Describe video for everyone who didn't see that. It's like yeah, a centimeter, maybe centimeter and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then can you like, because it's with the the human body and everything, and how we interact with the cold. Well, are you are you able to go and see like how the body? Like, you know, if something's too cold or anything that it could lead to like a, a bigger muscle strain or like an injury or anything like that as well? Or is that? Yeah, so a, a muscle strain would be, yeah, that would be an interesting topic. There's a lot of factors that could go into like a muscle strain. So it'd be, it would be fairly difficult to kind of tease out if it was only the cold that caused that. But there are definitely cold injuries that we can uh, identify. So things like frostbite, frost nip, uh, Raynaud's syndrome, uh, any issues with circulation. 
Uh, that's basically what Raynaud's uh, syndrome is in the cold. You lose circulation to your hands and your fingers or extremities, basically, because your body will defend a core temperature. So all the really important processes that are going on in your body to keep you alive are, of course, more towards the core. So your brain, your organs, those kinds of things that are functioning. So yeah. your body will, as soon as it senses a change in that, you have these, call them thermoreceptors, um, in your core, and if they change really, even really small, uh, or really detect really small changes in temperature in your core, they immediately start to defend that core temperature. So they basically stop as much circulation from happening to your extremities. And that's why things like Raynaud's and whatnot happen. Interesting. If that makes sense. Oh, hundred percent. And it kind of brings me back to the days of um, playing hockey in like rural Saskatchewan, where we'd play in barns and places that didn't have any heat. So Kind of oh, explains, totally. explains why my hands and feet constantly get cold now. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> good old, good old boot warmers, though, will fix anything. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, in in your in your view, how can we better understand and appreciate the relationship between human physiology and outdoor activities? How could we better understand? I think it's, uh, well, through the process that I'm kind of going through right now. So um, this research process, which is obviously super important on the academic side. So figuring out what's been done already. And there has been a fair amount of work done that dates uh, back pretty far to, to understand some of these processes. Field kind of started uh, in the 1900s with uh, workers, really, because that was, that was the important kind of hot ticket item was how do you keep mine workers or people in the military uh, from freezing or getting these cold injuries. That's where a lot of this work started and now it's branched off into sports science a little bit more. So there's that kind of formal research process. But there's also equally, I think, as important, the understanding from people with kind of boots on the ground every day. So it's conversations with people who probably implicitly or through their own experiences know a little bit or know already what's going on uh, out in the field. So things like search and rescue workers or people who are mountain guides who spend all this time out there. You know, they don't need me to tell them that when they're on the skin track going up the mountain, they start to feel more warm. That's <laughs> pretty much a given. So we all, there's so much of that understanding and so much of that knowledge that we can uh, access through conversations with those people. And it's really valuable. I think sometimes people are really quick to only want this super scientific evidence-based information, which is incredibly important, of course, but there's also a lot of value in those kinds of conversations with, with people who've worked in the field for a long time. You, you describe engineering in Fort McMurray, where, <laughs> you know, someone's worked in the oil patch for 35 plus years, and then you see a, a green engineer come up and try to tell him how to do his job. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it happens in research all the time. And I think it's, you know, it never, it's not a malicious place, just like with your green in engineer, you know, it's someone who's really gung ho, someone who's really excited about research or really excited about sports science or something like that. And, you know, they want to make a difference. So they go up to this, this person and they say, oh, you should do it this way. It'd be so much more efficient, blah, blah, blah. But there's also, and I'm sure you've encountered this in engineering. It's like, you know, from the scientific side of things, you might have discovered something that you think is important and you're like oh you have to try this blah 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 but when you actually talk to the people again with like boots on the ground they're saying is it really worth implementing something that's going to make me 0.2 percent more efficient or something like that so that's where yeah coming down it comes down to also figuring out what's important to people who are either participating in these sports or working in these sports 
And that's a lot of what I'm up to right now is just trying to talk to people and, and get an idea of how their experiences fit in with the, all the literature and the research that's been done. Do you find a lot of people in the industry are looking at research quite a bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're in such an age of information here, which is, uh, it, it's a great thing in a lot of cases, obviously has its problems, but information has never been more accessible to more people. So the, that kind of buzz term of evidence-based everything is, uh, is pretty, pretty prevalent. <laughs> <laughs> it's always so interesting, though, like chatting with people sometimes where they'll read something and then they like think they have an idea and then it's like completely out to lunch. Oh, totally. Yeah. And again, that's one of those things that happens all the time in research too. You think you have this great idea and then you realize some guy answered that question in like 1952. And you're like, oh, well, <laughs> at least we know. <laughs> there goes my PhD research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The importance of a good, uh, good literature review of everything that's been done already, I suppose. hundred, hundred percent. Um, so when it comes to academic and outdoor life, um, how important is community um, when it comes to research and everything? Oh, I think it's really important. Um, community, I mean, having a community in general uh, for me in, in all of my outdoor sports has been what's made, you know, moving around a little bit in the last few years so much easier than it could have been. So, you know, a lot of my friends that I've made out here have been through mountain biking, been through snowboarding, hiking, trail running, all those kinds of things. And then in the research, uh, having a research community, is also great as well because you can all sit down and and have conversations and ideas and so many of the things that I've ended up uh, incorporating into my research and ideas that I've had have come out through just like a quick coffee chat or a quick conversation with somebody again it's that kind of collaborative process uh, that builds a research community and you can learn from each other that uh, that helps me incorporate what becomes important into my research. And then when you started building your community, how did you start out doing it? <laughs> uh, great question. I think just showing up, to be honest with you. I just kind of showed up places and uh, then I ended up and ended up making friends and things kind of snowball from there uh, on the personal side. And then in research and academics, that's uh, that's something that I think has definitely contributed to where I've ended up in research is I've always just kind of reached out to people I thought were cool, whether it was through email or talking to people at conferences, just like, hey, I've read about your work and I'm interested in it. And can we have a, have a talk? And that's how I've gotten pretty much every position I've had so far from my undergrad research work to finding my master's supervisor uh, out in Victoria and then to finding my PhD supervisor. Every single one of those connections started with me reading about them on a university website and being like, hey, that guy's cool. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to have a conversation with them. And it just snowballed into something much bigger. Yeah. So the academia version is sending emails and the, the brand version of that is like DMs and Instagram comments. <laughs> just physically showing up to things and being like, hey, our, this is a, this is kind of embarrassing. It was actually, but it was funny and it worked out in the end was I was having a coffee in Squamish um at my favorite little donut spot up there one day working on something and there was a guy sitting across from me having a meeting with someone they were talking about like wool fibers and whatnot and it seemed like a really intense conversation and they got into the business side of things so I was like oh I don't really want to like interrupt this um so I just sat there waiting and then he got up and and went to his car and I just 
ended up standing up and sprinting out of the coffee shop after him. Like, I was like, wait a second. He's kind of looking at me like, oh my God, who is this person who he's going to solicit me for something or what's going on? And I was like, no, I just heard you talking about wool and I want to, I want to talk shop. So. And what, what were they building? I'm not, uh, I can't, can't really say too, too much about it. Unfortunately, that's kind of their, uh, their background work that's going on at the moment, but they were just talking about, uh, fiber compositions and, and base layers essentially. <laughs> oh, fair. So are they doing it from an academia research side or building a brand? Uh, they were doing it from more of an academia research side as well. So another research connection, which is, uh, always great to have, cool. but again, it's just building communities and in, in both research and in you know outdoor pursuits or personal life so much of it is just those random interactions that that end up happening and end up leading to something so much bigger yeah so so true and like i've only mountain bike this is my last summer was the first year mountain biking and then okay. i found out i was a mountain biker when i told people i'm like yeah i do 100 kilometers a week and like oh you're you're a mountain biker i'm like no i just like casually ride and like no you ride like 10 times more than me and i've been doing this for like 10 years <laughs> <laughs> but the community of mountain biking i've never seen something that you don't know exists like it's the tightest knit community um you'll ever run into and you don't know it exists until you become a mountain biker yeah totally i mean i only started mountain biking when i moved to vancouver island to do my master's i was kind of interested in it when i lived in edmonton and then i moved to victoria honestly had really no idea what i was getting into living in victoria i just wanted the academic opportunity and then I got it more into the mountain biking community and it's been such a stellar experience. And I think some of my best friends and, and uh, the people that I spend the most time with now are people I met through mountain biking. So these sports communities, I think, are, are super tight knit, like you said. And that's one of the reasons I also really enjoy uh, doing the research with them. 100%. Um, and then you said you do trail running. How frequent do you trail run? Uh, the thing I love about trail running is the fact that it's such a supportive uh, kind of chill community uh, versus some running. I mean, the intensity of a lot of road running is awesome for people who like that environment. What I really like is that trail running, I go trail running, you know, like once a week, a couple times a week, maybe. Um, but I'm still a trail runner. And I think that's the same with a lot of these outdoor sports is, like you said, being a mountain biker, being a trail runner. If you're participating in it, you can absolutely identify with the that that identity, whatever you want to to be. It's not that you know you have to hit a certain mileage every week or that you have to uh, you know enter X races and place well at X races. You can just participate, and there's a spot for you in all these communities, and that's what I like about them so much. Yeah, it, it's interesting how it comes and goes sometimes because you'll see in like a grassroots side it'll be like, oh, you know, everyone participate, everyone come be a part of it. And then sometimes you see things where women don't get included in certain mountain bike um, events and everything. So it, it's interesting to see how it comes in or like ebbs and flows, which it probably shouldn't at that level. <laughs> but yeah, definitely some some complex uh, factors at play there in, in these sports for sure. Um, yeah, I was curious about trail running, though, because like, as a mountain biker, I'm like, when I see it, whenever I see a, a, a road biker um, or a trail runner, they're usually not smiling as much as mountain biking. So I'm like, why would you do a sport that like doesn't make you smile? <laughs> I think, see the, the people that I've met who are really intense uh, road bikers and whatnot, they, they have that really intense 
look about them sometimes when they're biking, but then you ask them, how was your ride? I was like, oh my God, this is the best day of my life. So I think it's just like just locked in intensity that some people really enjoy. And it's the same thing for, for road runners. Um, and a lot of times for people, that's like kind of their, their time. It's almost like their Zen time um, is within their sport. So they're almost in this like trance kind of state or like, a, you know, they're almost meditating during those sports. So sometimes that like intense look is like, they're actually, they're having a great time. You just wouldn't know it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so speaking of like being connected to nature and, you know, being outdoors and this might be your, your trip to India, but can you recall an experience that deeply connected you to nature and if it influenced your research or perspective? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that, yeah, this is on that India trip as well. So there were a couple of areas that were only accessible kind of by foot um, so it's, you know, hiking in or some people like the locals that live there would have animals help them bring, um, bring food or other supplies back. Um, it was kind of being in that environment and just feeling that small. I mean, I think if you're looking to feel small, the Himalayas are a really great place to go. <laughs> some enormous mountains, uh, and there's these, these moments of realizing that we were maybe the only people on the trail that day, uh, for, you know, who knows how many miles. And that really just connected me to that kind of landscape and that area. And it's a feeling that I've gotten now in, in other hikes as well through the mountains here uh, on the coast or back home in the Rockies. And just taking a, I usually just take a second to enjoy that and be present in that moment of feeling small. And, and it's almost comforting. I know it's, I think there's been a lot of discourse around this about whether feeling small in the universe and realizing you're actually not that important. Is it scary or is it comforting? And I've always found it really comforting, actually, sitting there being like, I'm just one little part of all of this that's going on. And I think that's definitely influenced my research in terms of, you know, my research alone isn't you know, the most important thing in the world, or even in this field, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm just leading the charge and everybody else is going to be, you know, following whatever. It's really just the collective efforts of all these small projects that will make actual change and kind of move these industries forward. And that's what I'm really enjoying about this as well. Is there's so many people doing uh, such great work in my field and in all fields, and that's what keeps everything moving forward. Yeah, that that's cool. I never thought of it as like, you know, something that makes you feel small to, you know, push it, push it forward the, the way I experience it or like the way I um, experienced that, like, you know, we're, we're a small speck of dust um, is when I, when I lost my mom in 17 days, it kind of shows you how fast the world can change and mm. how nothing can like you, we have no control. So we might as well enjoy our days. Totally. Take the good days while you have them, I suppose. Yeah. And the thing that I found too is like, even in the bad days, there are good. You kind of have to uh, just look back when you reflect on it. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, even if a good, even if a good thing in that bad day is only like what you've kind of learned from it, I've definitely had research days like that where, you know, everything goes wrong. All of my equipment fails. I screw everything up, whatever it is. And then, you know, I sit down at the end of the day or the next day and reflect on it. It's like, oh, boy, OK, this is this is not going to be a fun reflection period. But at the end of it, I've always at least learned one thing that can make the next day better. So you know, <laughs> take, that, take that as a positive. <laughs> yeah. And, there, and there's always tomorrow to get it right. 
Exactly. My, my supervisor actually said something to me um, on Friday. So luckily we didn't, but we thought we'd lost a sensor just somewhere on a chairlift. We found it eventually, but, um, you know, and I was obviously a little worked up about it. I was like, oh, shoot, like we lost the sensor. I wanted the data from that sensor. You know, I'm still pretty new in my PhD, so I'm trying to impress my supervisor. And so I go and tell him, like, I think we lost the sensor. It's somewhere on Whistler Blackcomb, which is like 8,000 hectares or acres or whatever it is of terrain. We're not finding this thing. Um, and he says, and I'm, I'm never going to forget what he says. He's like, well, Molly, if we're not breaking things, we're not doing things. So don't worry about it. I'm like, oh, thank God. That's, you know, how you feel about it. Because I was terrified. But. <laughs> it's like the motto, whereas if you're not, you're not crashing, you're not learning. Oh God! <laughs> I feel like that brought up some uh, some uh, highlight reels in your mind of skiing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, snowboarding. Trying to, I right now in my snowboarding, I'm like trying to, you know, bring some some spice into into the runs and whatnot. So trying to nail like all my 360s and whatnot. It's been humbling to say to say the least. <laughs> so it's really nice to feel like I'm you know 12 learning how to carve again <laughs> <laughs> and then you see a and then you see a, a five-year-old spin like a 1080 like 1080 backflip and you're like no, oh no. yeah of course like again it's it's whistler like the kids that grow up here there's something in the water like <laughs> it's, it's crazy i've never you never felt feel uh again more humbled than you know riding past a ski school of 10 year olds who are all like going up to yeah practice these tricks on the double blacks and you're like okay <laughs> i get it <laughs> yeah so true i think my favorite thing i ever saw was um i think it was either team japan or team china one one of the the teams from across the the ocean um they were practicing in whistler and their style like they all like there was 12 of them and when they went through the terrain park they all did the same tricks all spaced out like five meters apart like it was yeah it was cool to see because it'd be like oh 360 360 360 and then like 270 on 270 out and like all the same all in the same outfits it was like it was like synchronized snowboarding and skiing yeah you know it's it's so impressive but i think like where um where i think it's awesome that the sports are going is kind of that there's so much opportunity and visibility for people to get into these sports. So I love seeing like, you know, kids being able to get on the mountain and learn these things. And, you know, I know growing up and like having Rabbit Hill, love Rabbit Hill, love learning there. Um, but I wasn't definitely, I was definitely not aware of all the opportunities that existed in snowboarding until a bit later. So love that, you know, seeing that and seeing kids just enjoying themselves on the mountain has been awesome. And there's something about night, like after a, a day of work and you get to go skiing from five to nine in the dark, like that's, that's the most fun. Oh, do they have that at Windsport? N no, they Rabbit Hill and Sunridge you oh. all have night skiing. Well, I mean, uh, and have, they I haven't lived in Edmonton in a while, man. Cool. And Windsport. I just figured they always had night skiing. Oh, there you go. Who knows? Maybe they, maybe they added it on when you moved. <laughs> they knew I left. So they were like, hey, we're going to do this now. How long how long have you been away from Alberta? Uh not too too long. So I moved in August 2020 is when I moved to uh Victoria to start my masters. And yeah, now I'm just still out here. 
telling all of my friends when I moved at like at my going away party, uh, they're kind of saying like, you're not coming back. We know you're not coming back. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to move to Victoria, do my master's a couple of years, and then I'll be back. Don't worry. I, was, I would never, you know, move away. And here I am in 2024, no plans to leave. <laughs> August, 2020, was that, uh, was that the first August of COVID? That was the first August of COVID. Yeah. So was it, was your master's like a COVID crisis? Um, I actually, I had a really good experience in my master's. Uh, we were able to collect data and whatnot. Like I did a, I did a master's in a different field in biomechanics, um, specifically the biomechanics of the bench press and the bench press throw. Um, so kind of the physics of those exercises. And we were able to uh, get approval from the university to collect data and whatnot. So I was one of the, the more fortunate people for sure uh, doing my master's at that time. It was just really, uh, <laughs> I think the biggest shock was moving to Victoria during a pandemic. And, you know, Victoria is a massive tourist hub, but the borders were closed. No one was kind of uh, allowed in or to tour and whatnot. So I was like, oh man, people keep telling me how busy Victoria is, but you know, it's a ghost town. And then the next summer, when everything opened up, I was like, oh my God, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> Just poof, people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember I remember when COVID hit and then like everyone was work from home um, and then being like outside sales at the time, like driving to people's accounts, like rush hour traffic did not exist. And it was like the nicest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> Just drive anywhere and you can get there in like 10 minutes. You don't have to worry about students come or school coming out of anything. <laughs> totally um so with that like you know where you have your 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 like snowboarding which is a big passion of yours and then you know you're studying it how do you keep your life and work fresh and avoid feeling overwhelmed or stuck in a routine oh great question yeah um i think just trying to learn new things uh every time i i'm going so my snowboarding. I wasn't snowboarding much actually while I was doing my master's uh, living in Victoria and the closest thing was Mount Washington, which is like four hours away or so. So I, w I got out a few times a year. And then I went on this really great trip last year uh, with some people from Edmonton, Calgary, actually, where we did a road trip down through like Jackson Hole, Big Sky, Grand Targhee and Whitefish on the way home. So four different mountains that were amazing. And just that kind of feeling of getting back on my board consistently and getting a little bit better each day, getting more confident each day is really what roped me back in uh, to, to snowboarding fully. And so to keep things fresh, I just keep trying to kind of chase that feeling of what am I doing today that's making me a little bit better tomorrow? What one, what thing can I improve 1% today that's going to make me a little bit better? Um, so things like just trying out different terrain, like am I working on, I, at the start of the day, I'll usually if I'm snowboarding, be like, okay, what am I working on today? Is it picking lines? Is it, you know, a natural feature that I want to check out and just trying to keep it fresh like that. Um, can't say I'm a big fan of like snowboarding groomers, to be honest with you. So I can usually, I'm usually off somewhere in the, <laughs> in the other terrain uh, and that definitely keeps it fresh. And in terms of my, my work and my research, I think it would be really, really hard to make it boring, to be honest with you. Every day I'm like discovering another paper by somebody who studied something incredibly niche 30 years ago. And then that sends me down a rabbit hole of, of reading about, you know, that really niche thing. Or I was just reading this paper uh, the other day where someone actually, even in the nineties, so he was so far ahead of his time, it was amazing, was studying like the physical demands and uh, how much heat production people um, 
people were experiencing during skiing groomed versus ungroomed runs and then blues versus blacks. So, you know, and it's, when it's a topic like that, that I'm so passionate about, it's, I think it'd be hard to make it boring. <laughs> Fair. And then when you're speaking about like, you know, doing 1% better, is that from the book Atomic Habits? Um, I learned that from a mentor of mine, actually. Um, and maybe they learned it from there. I think that's a pretty common kind of sentiment that a lot of, of people have discovered that, you know, real improvement um, comes from those little itty bitty improvements every every day rather than in enormous increments. So if you can do something more consistently, you're going to get your better results than uh, trying to make a huge change in one day. Well, yeah, if you're if you're 1% better every day, by the end of the year, you're 37 times better than what you started at. Yeah, is that from Atomic Habits? Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. I figured. <laughs> and then the, the thing that I thought was really cool is they talked about the British bike team and mm. they hadn't won a race for forever. Actually, I don't think they had won any in the in the Olympics at the time. And then the new coach came in and yeah, he was being 1% better. So it was like, you know, they painted all the 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 insides of the, the bike um or their vans that carried the bikes white so you could see the dust so then it was easier to clean up and like you know then they had like one extra layer on to keep their legs um a little bit warmer and whatnot when they trained and yeah then they after doing all these changes for a year i think they won three or i i mean it's over 12 years or whatever so three olympics back to back they just kept winning all these races so it was cool to see yeah that's awesome well again power of just being a little bit better <laughs> Well, I, like, I think it's, you know, when you try to go too full or like too far for or too far new in something, that's when your body resists it. And then, you know, yeah, maybe you can maintain going to the gym every day if you've never been to the gym for like an hour um, for like 30 or 45 days, but then you end up hating yourself and quit. Whereas if like you just started with like 10 minutes and then slowly kept going, you'd progress way further. Oh, totally. It's all, yeah, about just making sustainable changes rather than these like drastic, unsustainable changes for sure. Um, yeah, speaking of those kinds of, I guess, systems or atomic habits and whatnot, and then thinking of that mentor that I was talking about, um, bringing back to your question about how I kind of got into this area as well, I learned a really good technique that I share with a lot of my students actually about kind of finding where you want to go in your niche. And I'm I'm sure a lot of people um, have heard of this as well, but it's that concept of finding what uh, what you want to do through a series of, of kind of questions. There's four of them. It's, you know, what does the world need? What am I good at? Uh, what can I get paid for? And what's the other one? I'm blanking on it here. Oh, and what do I enjoy doing? Um, so those kind of four questions and finding what is actually existing at the intersection of those four things. Um, is said to it, I've definitely found this kind of leads you towards what you should be or supposed to be doing in life or kind of your your place in the world. And that's uh, a process I've gone through many, many times as I've tried to figure out kind of my place in this world. And eventually it landed on thermophysiology during backcountry skiing. <laughs> well, and it it's definitely evolved over time from being kinesiology in your undergrad to bench pressing in your masters to now ski, uh, backcountry skiing in your PhD. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, a lot of iterations of things. There's altitude research in my undergrad, as well as I did a little bit of uh, aerospace research in my undergrad as well. Uh, not too, too much, but dabbled there. Then I went the strength and conditioning route. 
um, did that really amazing master's at the University of Victoria, where I got to be a strength coach alongside my research in the uh, bench press throw. And then uh, kind of pivoted and went back to, as I call it, my roots in extreme environment physiology, but blended a lot of what I learned about uh, sports and, and training for sports from my master's into this kind of Frankenstein degree, as I kind of joke about it. It's like, it doesn't really fit under, you know, one umbrella. It's like sports and it's, you know, the kind of thermodynamic side of things, but it's exactly what I want to be doing right now. So I'm pretty stoked to be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe when Addison's um, in university, they'll be powder skiing 101 and it'll be taught by Molly at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pitch to the University of Alberta. I'll, I'll be there if they want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, yeah. Or um, go down to California. Well, I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I guess Canada is the only one where, like, do you have, like, is it easy for people to go across the border to teach or? Um, I mean, I haven't had any experience trying to do that yet. Um, I'm sure it'd be, you know, like any any other job where uh, there would be a process to it. But I, I do know people end up in the States. I have friends who've ended up in New Zealand uh, to teach and whatnot. So it really just depends on your kind of weird niche skill set, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, just figure out where the most um, ski companies are making cool stuff and then um apply to that university yeah i mean i think that's that's a big reason why i ended up here in uh, in north vancouver is because of the tech apparel companies uh that are around here and also just the general ease of access to a lot of these sports from where i am right now um kind of bred this culture of of research in that in this area here so that's been awesome and then i guess that's my question because like, i i get asked when you know having a goggle brand in canada why 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 aren't i in Banff for why aren't I in Vancouver and my argument was if I'm going to have a home base that I'm probably not at it's an easier pill to swallow when I like for me like because I'm 10 minutes from downtown like my house was $250,000 where 10 minutes from downtown in Vancouver just for the <laughs> land is like five million dollars <laughs> yeah but is it is it as bad as people joke or is it Oh, Vancouver's, uh, yeah, it's, um, I mean, the cost of living here is definitely, definitely higher than Edmonton, you know, a bit of sticker shot coming from, from Edmonton, that's for sure. Um, but again, I think that it's, there's just, there are trade-offs and it depends on the person and, and where they want to be and what they want to be doing. So like, I wouldn't trade where I live right now for, uh, for a lower cost of living because of the ease of access to the sports that I do and for my research and I kind of have to be here for my research. <laughs> Um, not a bad place to land for a PhD, um, but also I totally understand the other perspective of, of, you know, wanting to stay in Edmonton or one of those places as well. And really just came, comes down, I suppose, to what you make of it, what's important to you and, and what you consider to be factors when you're choosing a place to live. Yeah, 100%. And I don't spend enough time here, I don't think, in, unless it's like minus 44 and then you just like hunker down. Um, <laughs> but now it's plus 10, so it's not too bad. Um, so, you know, being in, um, your studies have been shifting and everything. How has your perspective on outdoor activities evolved since you began your PhD? Oh, another really good question. Uh, I think my, my biggest perspective shift has been the need and desire in the community for more inclusive activities. 
Um, I think we've seen, well, we know that the participation um, in these activities for women and for indigenous people and other people of color um, lags, unfortunately, behind the opportunities that are available uh, for um, Caucasian people, uh, specifically like the stereotypical straight white man is typically the participant in these sports. And those, those numbers are catching up. I think that um, there are a lot more women participating in trail running, a lot more women participating in things like skiing and snowboarding. Uh, which is awesome to to see that trend happening. But my perspective on that is that the research also needs to catch up. So some of my research is actually going to be in kind of the sex differences, the differences in the thermophysiology of men versus women uh, who are participating in these sports, because we know that differences exist in that physiology. Differences exist in how uh, men versus women perceive temperatures, how their bodies respond to changes in temperatures. Um, so putting that all together and how do they perceive and respond to temperatures differently during sports is kind of the question that I'm looking at now with my research. Um, and some really encouraging work happening, I think, in these areas, uh, both academically and the social programs. Uh, so I'm excited to, to see that continue forward. And has anyone looked at that already or will you be the first? People have definitely looked at, looked at uh, the differences between men and women uh, during sports and uh, also just the thermophysiology side of it. Definitely. It's an emergent sort of field, I would say. There's still not a ton out there, so a lot of unanswered questions. But I'm super fortunate to get to learn from some of these kind of giants in this field who, who've done some of this work already. That's cool. And I it, it kind of brought up the um, when, you know, at Lake Stampede, or other festivals where they had like the period simulator and they had men try it. And we just learned that men are big wusses comparatively. <laughs> Has that been the same for when we see it in thermophysiology and everything? Like the, a man is kind of a bigger wuss? Um, no, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily even use those terms to sort of describe the differences. I would say that they're just different, um, different responses to different temperatures in men and women. And again, we're still kind of figuring that out. Um, but it has nothing to do with, you would say, I guess, being more of a wuss. It's more just the uh, morphological. So yeah. meaning like body mass to surface area ratios and whatnot are different between men and women. Um, so women are more susceptible to needing to generate more heat. Um, women tend to perceive things as cold earlier than men do, things like that. And it's, again, it's not so much a judgmental, like, you know, you're feeling cold, you're wolf, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's more like, how can we use this information to inform decisions we make about gear or just make better gear for, for men and women and stuff like that? Yeah, maybe wuss isn't the right word. It's usually when, <laughs> like, like when I see other men and like, you know, you you see them with their ego of like, oh, I could, I could do this. And then they kind of get, like, it's the same as like when I talk to my friends who have the podcast or the the channel girls pull up not out um mountain mm. bike memes and everything where you know you get the trailside chads and everything who like try to like just the ego and everything where it's like no there you know we we have differences in bodies we're going to react differently it's you know we don't have to have a an ego per se um but yeah that's interesting to see like you know even in the bodies like women like the temperature changes are different so like gear should be different but you know, talking to my friend, um, Michaela, who has Nex Arena, um, 
gear because she she was starting to she she's making a full outdoor apparel brand for women because at five feet she'd never found stuff that fit um so it'd be cool to see eventually if it's not already there like different materials um in men's and women's rather than the the old term of shrink it and pink it totally that we saw with skis and everything it'd be like oh you know here's a man ski and we're gonna just make it in a in a 160 and add pink to it and that's it rather than being like oh you know we have different bodies different weight um or centers centers of gravity etc maybe we should use different wood and material to make this a more enjoyable ski rather than oh we could just make it pink and make the same ski and have a better profit <laughs> totally i think that there's there's smarter decisions that we can make that are more based in in some research and, and also in uh, again like you kind of said that experience that people have had too so um yeah your points about materials there's also design considerations that we we could probably be making uh, and that's a lot of the work that we're trying to inform right now uh in my lab that's that's super cool it uh reminds me of the brand uh the mountain bike brand wild rye mm. They seem to be doing some cool stuff with um, different shapes and everything, putting zippers in places that need to be put and just making them more enjoyable. Totally. And I, what you said about kind of my perspective on outdoor sports, I think it, it is really encouraging to see the amount of thought that's going into these kinds of considerations. Um, so design choices like zippers that you're kind of talking about, um, designing gear for different proportions. Because um, obviously men and women have different uh, needs in that area, so shoulder width to torso width, those kinds of things. Um, and it's amazing to see just how many people are excited about those kinds of advancements in these areas. And, and it's only going to help, I think, girls and women participate at a higher level in these sports. hundred percent. And yeah, I think, yeah, or where I was going with this is like when you see things made for you and when you see people who look like you doing the sports, that's what gets you excited. Cause then you like, don't feel as alienated. Like when like potentially you could be like the only one like doing this sport. And then until you come into the community and make friends, it's like, you know, that that's pretty isolating at the start. But if you see like ads and you see brands and you see things like, I remember, I forget what clothing brand it was, but it was like, someone actually had a three X shirt and it was like fitted differently and had like a model and the, the person's comments on like the Instagram account were like, like, yeah, their, their joy. And like, you could just read it in their comments of how excited they were to finally see representation of themselves. Um, no, totally. It, it, the visibility is so important. And I think we're doing, um, we're starting to do a better job of that. And people are, are, seeing themselves in a lot of these sports one thing that really comes to mind for me is even just this past weekend um madison black so she's a really really wicked um snowboarder and she was just you know in her first x games and she's in her 30s so it's things seeing things like that so like this woman who um in her 30s is now participating in the x games being able to see that as you know a either a younger woman or even a woman in you know, your 30s being that, you know, your athletic career, even if you're not going to go to the X Games, doesn't have to end. You don't have to stop snowboarding when you become 30 or some of those amazing skiers um, who, you know, have kids but still have a pro skiing career. Uh, that's super encouraging to see as well. Well, yeah, what was the what was the ski video that came out? Was it either this year or last year with the, the three moms? Here, hold my kid. 
Yeah, that was, probably, <laughs> that was probably one of the funniest um, ski films and enjoyable ski films I've seen in the last few years. Yeah, no, it's just really being able to kind of see yourself in these in these people. Like I said, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to go become a, a pro skier while they're a mom or whatever it is, but really just that message of these things can coexist. So your athletics and these other identities, all of these identities that you have don't need to be um, mutually exclusive. Well, 100%. And the world now, like we, we've passed 8 billion people. I don't know exactly what decimal point um but like you know we we say we're unique but i i'd like i i think that you know even in my unique um ways i'm still like one percent probably higher than that of the world and you know one percent of eight billion people is still a lot of people that you know you like you, like that's what i always find interesting when people um like you're scared to start something or like, I'll never find my customers. It's like, well, no, even at like, you know, if you did something for the 1% of the world, there's a, there's enough there that you could generate revenue to have a, have an enjoyable like passion and life and everything. So I think a lot of people forget that um, when it comes to things or like, you know, like when you you're like, Oh, I'm going to make ski pants that, you know, fit my body type and then fit other people's body types. Like, yeah, there's probably 10% of the world that would, that would apply to you. And, you know, once you figure out how you build your marketing campaigns and how you're going to communicate, like there's enough revenue in there to like do that for the rest of do that for the next 40 years while you ski and enjoy yourself. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like you're kind of talking about, it's all just really about finding kind of where you fit in these worlds and what you're stoked on doing. Yeah. So, you know, you said you're late twenties, are we going to see Molly in the X games in, in four years? <laughs> maybe uh, maybe there's an x games for like reading scientific papers or something <laughs> no no i really i really like I, I participate in these sports um because i love them and then who knows where my snowboarding career will, will take me but uh I'm, I'm definitely more focused on the on the academics at the moment have been for you know eight years i like don't i don't know anything else at this point <laughs> well have you seen that guy on TikTok where he has the green screen behind him and then he'll do whatever sport and then he shows like the Zoom camera and he's in a meeting? No, I haven't, but I should I should look this guy up. <laughs> yeah, because you could be doing your, you'd be like have to be on a call with your um, your supervisors or whatever. And then, yeah, just green screen behind you and you're actually just dropping like a like a 10 foot cliff into powder. <laughs> <laughs> I should do that. Just blur my background. That'll be enough, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, so, you know, you, you've been doing your, like been in academia for eight years now. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's, you know, thinking about it and they're, they're kind of like dipping their toe in? Kind of dipping their toes in. Yeah. So I would, uh, I would say that one of the most important things you can do is just kind of get out there and, and try the different things, um, that are available to you, especially if you're in something like undergrad, looking to get into academics, being able to just reach out to people um, is a huge skill. So like I kind of said to you earlier, all of my opportunities have come from essentially cold emails or cold calls or just knocking on somebody's door and saying like, hey, can we have a chat? And you, I think it's easy to be intimidated by, by people in the research world. You know, you think, oh, this person like has a PhD, 
this person's, you know, a big wig in their field, whatever it is. But I have always found that people are more than willing to help. And people are usually really excited that you're excited about whatever niche area they're kind of researching. So not being afraid to approach people that you think you'd like to have a discussion with, um, because in general, people want to help you and people want to bring you on board and want to see their fields advance as well. And then the other kind of piece of advice there that I would have is to not go to grad school for the sake of going to grad school. <laughs> it's something that we, I talk about with some of the, the undergrads and whatnot that I mentally like, well, I'm not really sure what to do yet. So I think I'll do a master's and it's kind of like, okay, in what, and what do you want to do with that master's degree? And what do you want to really look at? Um, I think, you know, having a bit more, more of a, an idea of what you would like to do um, is, a, is a powerful tool in kind of developing that during your, your undergrad studies. Not that it's necessary. I've also seen people, you know, take a couple years after undergrad and then go in a completely different direction with uh, research than they ever thought they would. But just taking that time at whatever point it is um, to, to learn maybe with what I just talked about. So, you know, what does the world need? What are you good at? What do you like doing? And what can you get paid for? Taking the time to really determine where you fit in the world um, is super valuable. Yeah. And it, it's interesting when you say like, oh, you know, someone like will leave for a couple of years and then figure out their master's and everything. And I think that can go for people who are, you know, in anything if they're going into the workforce immediately after their undergrad. Um, but the thing that like my parents both had law, law degrees and stayed in law for like 25 years, but like that's not the norm like people change careers like every 10 years so it was like oh maybe i should look at what i could do for 10 years and then go find something new rather than um oh i have to do this for the rest of my life <laughs> totally and i think that like our world in general is changing so rapidly as well that in 10 years there'll be you know career opportunities that did that don't exist today and 10 years after that there will be career opportunities and fields of of study or of work that didn't, don't exist 10 years from now kind of thing. No, it's, it's very uh, quickly evolving. Um, so I think that people, you know, you know, you don't, just because you pick a certain area doesn't mean you're going to stay there forever, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, again, it's only been eight years and I've been in a few different fields so far. I wouldn't change anything about the way that I did things. Um, it's been really great. And I think every thing I've kind of dabbled in has made me better at the next thing that I move on to. Um, so also, I guess, just not being afraid of making the like quote unquote wrong decision in terms of a career because everything is going to be an experience so if you're if you're thinking of doing something you think you're interested in it at least try it out and if it doesn't pan out it'll make you better in some way likely <laughs> yeah that's so true um and then oh man adhd brain farts are, are a real thing sometimes um, <laughs> i had a question here um but you know when things don't go to plan, to figure it out. Um, where were they going with this? Oh, because like, yeah, your undergrad was kinesiology. Well, I guess kinesiology to bench press to then like those those seem pretty like pretty like you know that like you know it it um, like is more of a um, I guess what you said when. Um, you know, you did your master's and then you came back to your roots of like snowboarding. So it was kind of like you were going one way and then um, came back. But what made you do, what made you want to do your master's right after? 
Yeah, I think I had a really great experience uh, when I was in my undergrad mentor, being mentored by um, some strength and conditioning coaches at the University of Alberta, who they've all kind of since moved on to, to other things. But I was really fortunate to work with them um, as an intern while they were there and decided that that was the path I wanted to take was to go be a strength and conditioning coach, which is how I landed at the University of Victoria to do my master's there. Um, it was sort of a, a combined academic masters while also learning how to be a better coach and I was super fortunate to get there and learn some from amazing mentors at UVic and at the Canadian Sport Institute um, who helped me not only become a better coach be become a better researcher and ultimately even helped me realize that that area of biomechanics and of strength and conditioning might not be what I wanted to do long term so they were just really fantastic mentors who kind of helped me see what direction I wanted to go to. 100%. And it's always, it's good to have mentors who will push you to ask the tough questions um, then rather than, you know, five years down the road and you're like, oh, I could, this could have been a, a completely different tangent if we would have looked at it back here. Yeah. And I would say, honestly, my, the greatest things I've learned, like in my grad school career so far haven't been like the hard science obviously that's super important and it gives me a foundation to do the research that i'm doing now um but the most important things that i've learned have been that those kind of thought processes and reflection processes uh that landed me with what i'm doing now which i'm obviously pretty in love with so <laughs> pretty valuable yeah and what what do the next few years look like um for your phd <laughs> Oh, a lot of skiing at Whistler. That's what they look like. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll, I'll be here for a few years. Um, next steps are, you know, finalizing these projects, uh, collecting all the data, which is going to be the fun part. So again, a lot more days up at uh, up and behind Whistler out in the backcountry on the on the skin tracks, and uh, then hopefully at the end of it, writing up something coherent about what I found. <laughs> that'll be yeah, that'll be cool to see when it's all done. Um, ha has anyone? Um, like, cause I know they, they've started to do the research between, um, male physiology and female physiology. Um, has there been studies of different like races, like how, um, like if they would interact differently or not, or. Um... Yeah, there have been some studies and I mean, there are definitely like morphological considerations there. So again, like people's, um, kind of bodies between, um, people from different areas of the world and whatnot. So there is work that's been done there. But again, I think that is definitely something that needs to happen more. Um, because we just, a lot of the physiology, we we don't know yet. 100%. And, you know, hearing it a couple of times, it's kind of like everything in the world. There's so much that we don't actually know that we, <laughs> until you dig deeper, you think we have um, some idea, but it's like, nope, we just haven't even scratched the surface there yet. Totally. And I mean, it's a like there is an immense amount of work out there that's been done already. Some amazing researchers that I'm learning from and who have been writing papers, you know, all through the 1900s. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, 100, 100 150 years, really not that much time to, you know, figure out an entire field. So sports science as a whole is, you know, I always call it kind of a, a relatively new field. If you look at, you know, the history of planet Earth and we've really only started having the means to investigate these things more recently. Um, there's a lot we don't know. 
But that's what makes them so exciting too. There's so many different directions that people can go in this area um, because there's so many unanswered questions. And then you ask a question and the result of asking that question is four more questions. You mean on the stone hit on the on the stone hedges it's not carved into them that's showing you how the body interacts while skiing? Not that we've found yet, but I'll be sure to I'll be sure to look. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't even know how old skiing is, but I it'd be interesting to see someone back then and be like, so you're going down a hill on a two by four. Well, I guess for snowboarding, it's a like a one by eight um, on skis, you're on two by fours and you do this for fun. And it's like, yep, yep, we do. <laughs> um, but to conclude, what would you give someone, you know, who's having a bit of you know, a few bad days, or, you know, maybe they have gone down a path that um, they don't like where they are now, how would they go about to have more good days and fix that? Oh, another great question. Wow. Um, so I can definitely speak from my own experience and how I've felt in those, uh, those moments, because I've had a few of those in my career pivots here. Um, the first thing I think is just to let yourself kind of hold space for that, because really it is like a grieving process sometimes. If you're a person who is really passionate and suddenly you find that you're feeling like the path that you've chosen isn't for you anymore, it, it can feel like grief, really, um, letting that go or deciding that you don't want to do that anymore. Um, so holding kind of space for that grief to exist, but also realizing, again, again a kind of a scary, but also really exciting thought process is that you can now kind of do anything, um, which is the perspective that I've tried to hold for myself in those moments. It's like, yeah, it's really scary and, and kind of crappy that I am not doing what I thought I would love doing, or I don't love this and I thought I would. Um, but now this is really just another launching pad for something else. And that's how I ended up doing this and that, that I'm so excited about. And who knows, in 10 years, maybe I'll want to pivot again. And in that moment, it'll the same kind of thing is you know, realizing I can be excited about these changes um, and then figure out how I'm going to make those changes. So things like talking to people who are really stoked on what they're doing and, and discovering how they got into it or kind of re realigning what I'm doing with my own values and what I want to do every day. Yeah. And when you, when you did have the pivots and everything, because, um, well, I guess I'll, I'll start with mine. Um, you know, when I, when I found things that I didn't enjoy or when I, like, you know, started to resent certain things or, you know, I was like, oh shit, maybe I'm somewhere where I don't want to be. Um, kind of what I've noticed now is when I went back to reflect on it and everything, there's two kind of things that I think we kind of need to do all the time is one is reflect um, and two is be intentional with what we're doing. Um, and then that's usually how you don't have resentment is, you know, when you when you are intently, because like not everyone has to create a company, um, and do that for the rest of their life but um you know it's kind of figuring out your why and your purpose um it, which is you know that, that that's that's kind of like the big buzzwords or maybe intention is also the the buzzword that we um see there but is that what you experienced is like you know maybe you were kind of on autopilot yeah definitely or doing something um you know because i thought it was the logical next step and then what i was like supposed to do um, that kind of thing. But I really like what you said there. And I've done a lot of work in that kind of area of finding your why and, um, you know, what is your why and why do you want to do these things? Um, 
And sometimes you need to reflect on that and your why can change over time as well. And that's definitely what I experienced. Yeah. Have you read the book by Simon Sinek, The Why, The How, and The What? Yes, actually, I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it was funny when they when he talked about Microsoft and Apple because it was like Apple's like we're just gonna make your life better and that and then they went out from there and then like Microsoft was like we're gonna beat the iPod. <laughs> yeah, it's like what they call it, like the action oriented kind of uh, way of of doing things. So no, I think like one of the the things that came up while I was deciding what I wanted to do on my last pivot was conversation I actually had with some some friends. We were playing disc golf in Victoria. Have you ever played disc golf, by the way? That's the things where they have the the baskets, like, right, and you throw your frisbee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, do not call it a frisbee on the disc golf course. Oh, you will get destroyed. It is a disc. I learned that. <laughs> it is not a frisbee. <laughs> but uh, anyways, we were just playing disc golf one day, me um, and some of my friends, and having this conversation about where we wanted to live and like what we're what was everyone going to do if they were moving away from Victoria. And one of my friends said something um, that really hit home for me when I was thinking about my why again. I was like, I just don't want a life where I'm living for my weekends. Um, and I know that's not possible for everybody. And I want to recognize that, you know, that if you're a person who enjoys having your work during the week and then having your weekends free, that's awesome. But it really resonated with me because that's definitely how I try to live my life now where, you know, my Mondays and Tuesdays are indistinguishable from my Saturdays and Sundays because I'm, you know, blending a lot of what I love to do with what I kind of have to do for work. Um, and that's made me a lot happier and feel a lot more like I'm like I'm living true to my why and true to my purpose. Yeah. yeah and how I, I really ended up studying what I also do as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think it is like, you know, we, we kind of focus on, you know, go to school, go to university, get a job, do this. But it's like, you know, when we start like peeling back the, maybe not the onion, but like, what would be the word to like, maybe just shining a light to show that there's more than one way to do it. Like, you know, we're all different people. We're all raised differently. We're all this. It's like, you know, for some people working a um, fly in, fly out situation, like two weeks on, two weeks off is like the best thing. But then it's like, you know, I could never do that. Or like someone who wants, like loves nights or um, this, but it's like, yeah, we need to start bringing the conversations into I don't know, maybe high school um, and being like, hey, there's more than one way to like do things like, you know, you can go study, you can like do your research and like go snowboarding on a Tuesday for your career. <laughs> um, uh, I definitely didn't know this field existed in high school. That's for sure. And so I think a lot like specifically in kinesiology, there's so many interesting little branches that people would have no idea about until they just go to kinesiology really go get their degree um you know I didn't even know the kinesiology degree existed in high school either I took a couple years off and um, after high school and then found it so yeah kind of comes back I guess to what you're saying about visibility too uh and just you know having these careers be visible and as viable options not you know just what you would maybe traditionally think of a career yeah um what's the most random niche you've learned about in your time the most random niche yeah. Hmm. Oh, probably. I have a lot of like anatomy 
fun fact because I was like I'm an uh, lab instructor for anatomy at the university um so probably things like how you can trick your nervous system into uh thinking it feels things it doesn't basically um so for example on your arms it'd be hard to i'll just try and describe it but on your arm all of your neurons um in a certain area go back to your brain from the same nerve so if you're poking yourself with two fingers well you'd have to poke someone else and they would perceive it this way with two fingers they'll perceive it as one because of it. That signal is all going back through one nerve, if that makes sense. Anyways, that's just kind of a random niche fun fact that I've got. Weird. And where do you poke them? <laughs> on their arm. <laughs> Anywhere on their arm? Uh, mostly forearm, but <laughs> I'll have to maybe do that one in person. But just those kind of little like human body fun facts. There's so many niches and things that we've discovered that uh, I find super interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I guess last question, mm-hmm. um, and that's a new one. As I build out this podcast, who is someone that you would like to see on this podcast? Oh, who's someone that I would like to see on this podcast? Hmm. I would like to see someone else from the mountain biking community, I think. So I think you had uh representative from baseline on here mountain bike club well and it's it's funny that you say mountain biking because like and and like you know as i say it i'm apparently a mountain biker and my podcast now reflects this is i think i'm like we're on this is episode 13 i think we've had 10 mountain bikers and three three skiers (laughs) keep it well bring us bring a snowboarder on then (laughs) we brought you yeah bring another one who oh Put me on the spot here. Um, Who was the uh, X Games again? Uh, her name is Madison. I don't know her, but um, yeah, she's really cool. I think someone from like one of the kind of local hills in Alberta would be really fun. I'd have to think on who though. Maybe I'll, I'll have to email you. Okay, sounds good. That, and then I'll I'll make sure not to put people under the bus so then they can answer this question. Or actually, <laughs> actually, like, oh, man. <laughs> okay, one more question. Mm-hmm. What should I ask the next person? Mm, what should you ask the next person? Um, okay, another great question. I think you should ask the next person what they would be doing if they weren't doing what they're doing right now. So whatever you brought them on the podcast for, if they weren't doing that, what's something else they would be doing and would they be equally as stoked on it? Okay, cool. I will ask them that. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's great to great to chat with you and thanks for being interested in my weird niche little area of science. <laughs> it's funny because like as like having people on here, I've never I never thought I'd have someone who knows science more than like being like with my engineering degree um, <laughs> but it was awesome. like wild because i'm like i'd have to like listen and think um to some of your answers and everything because i'm like i did not know that existed now you know learn something new every day awesome well thanks everyone for joining us tonight